Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Christine Lamberson. Today, I'm here with our guest, Michelle Nickerson, who is an associate professor and graduate program director of history at Loyola University in Chicago. She researches and teaches about topics on the history of women and gender, U.S. politics, social movements, cities, and suburbs. Today, we will be discussing her book, Mothers of Conservatism, Women and the Post-War Right, which was published in 2012 with Princeton University Press as part of the Politics and Society in the 20th Century series. This book examines the grassroots activism and ideology of conservative women in Cold War Los Angeles and explores their impacts on the emerging conservative movement during the 1950s and 1960s. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, we wondered if you might start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian. Well, uh, thank you for asking. Um, I came to be a historian through my experiences both as uh, an undergraduate at Rutgers University in New Jersey um, and working for the National Park Service as a historical interpreter after I graduated. Um, I just I had a wonderful experience as both a history major and a German major um, when I was in college. And um, though I had absolutely no idea what was involved with becoming a professor, I don't come from an academic family. Um, and But I had a wonderful mentor there uh, by the name of Calvin Martin. And... Um, Though he discouraged me from going to graduate school once I decided to, um, he was incredibly helpful. And then uh, I worked for uh, the National Park Service in Alaska, in Sitka, Alaska, um, which, uh, for those who don't know, is on an island in southeast Alaska where a lot of cruise ships land, um, or actually uh, they sort of dock. And... Um, I gave tours to visitors and kind of fell in love with the process of doing research and interpretation. Um, And so after a while, I just kind of gathered the courage to apply to programs and originally thought I was going to study Native American history and the history of colonial Alaska. So when I first applied to graduate school, that's what I was going to do. Wow. So how did you go from colonial Alaska and Native Americans to this project? How did you get into doing research on women and conservatives <laughs> in the 1950s? Well, um, it was kind of strangely enough through that process. Um, so I, I came to Yale and I joined the American Studies program there. Um, and it's because I was very much interested in history and literature and culture. And um, while I was there, uh, you know, you meet new people, and I, I became politicized was, while I was there. I, you know, I'd always been a feminist, and I became interested in women's history. And um, I took classes with people like Nancy Cott and Robert Johnston. Robert is a political historian, and Nancy is a women's historian. And um, so I, Robert said to me when I did a, a research seminar with him, he said, there's this strange thing happening in the 50s called the Alaska Mental Health Bill that's getting a lot of attention. All these women are screaming about the Alaska Mental Health Bill. If you want to do something on Alaska in my class, why don't you check this out? And that was kind of the beginning because for anybody who reads my book knows that that's actually a chapter in the book. The Alaska Mental Health Bill became uh, essentially a conspiracy theory um, that women conservatives in the 1950s um, came to believe was an attempt by communists to establish a a Siberian camp, um, a gulag-style camp. And so that was one way into the, the thing that I wanted to study. And also, reading from my women's history exams, I discovered 
conservative women um, and well the way I wanted to study them while I was while I was reading for them um, Kristen Luker's book Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood was very inspirational for me I realized sociologists were studying conservatives the way I thought historians should and Alan Brinkley's call in 1994 for historians to study conservatism as a legitimate um, political movement. Um, I was among the generation that wanted to take up uh, that work. Uh, and so I completely changed my focus. Uh, and But I did not lose my advisor, John MacFarriger, who I came in to study Western history with in colonial history, um, encouraged me to, to make that shift. But uh, he, he always remained uh, the, the mentor for the project and the director of the dissertation. That sounds like a great journey. So your book is bringing together conservatism and women's history, and I thought maybe we would start then, or I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about who these women are. Why are they so exercised about what's going on in Alaska and mental health and these issues? Well, you know, I... You know, it, I was really flummoxed, too, when I started this, and um, I kind of started with that question. I'm, I'm glad you asked, because um, the the people around them uh, in the world of uh, Southern California, you might say, high life, were not generally interested in the Alaska Mental Health Bill. Um, these were middle-class women of, in some cases, school-age children, in some cases, their children were grown, um, but in most instances, they were they were mothers. Um, but they had decided that communism was such a menace that uh, it was their job to basically commit themselves, in some instances, full time to this problem. And so, I I actually interviewed about thirty women to to try and get a sense of pardon me, uh, why they felt uh, so politicized. And also, um, I did a great deal of, and mostly archival research, um, and most importantly, I found records of their meetings. Um, And what I discovered is that it was actually in the process of raising their children and doing the work of community volunteer activism. So basically the day-to-day work um, and activities of being women in their neighborhoods um, and doing kind of family activities that they came to see communism all around them. And it was through their conversations with each other and from reading deeply into political literature um, that they came to see what was to other people kind of mundane. They came to see communism. And so that's why eventually what other people thought was really just a mental health facility in Alaska um, to them came to seem like something very sinister. So it was it was a you know a gradual process. Gotcha. So sometimes looking back from our vantage point today, it can be kind of hard to uh, fully understand their fears or fully understand how that change takes place for them. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about why you think they saw something like the mental health bill in Alaska as being so threatening? Or maybe to put it another way, since you did interview a lot of these women, how do they look back and think about this now? Um, Well, my sense is is when it comes to the Alaska mental health bill, um, a lot of them seem to roll their eyes about it. And they know that the bill was really nothing to be afraid of. You know, those who had anything to do with it now, um, and they give kind of a chuckle. Um, But that overall, they think that communism really was something very dangerous. Um, And the way 
some of them talked to me about it uh, in the, you know, the time that I was doing research for the book, the way they put it is, quote, communism actually won. And so what that tells me uh, is that they saw many things that were, uh, many things that were actually transformations of the 1950s, social, political, cultural transformations, and they interpreted those changes as um, communistic. Things uh, that they saw like the civil rights movement or um, the sexual revolution, um, anything that they seemed, they thought was, was dangerous or subversive, they thought came from an outside force, something that was not American, something that would change the nature of the, and the American family and perhaps their relationships with their children. Um, and so they seemed to think that it couldn't be anything but um, some kind of socialism or communism. Gotcha. So you or, spend a lot of time talking about how their ideas about patriotism and their ideas about internationalism kind of come together. And is that really the part that you're talking about here, this idea that they think of anything that's sort of new ideas, these kinds of new changes that are taking place in the 1950s and the 1960s, that those must be coming externally? Right. So um, anything that seemed to be um, causing some kind of disruption in society, uh, protests or something that they could, that seemed to be at all criminal um, or anything that was unconventional to them seemed foreign and they would sometimes call it internationalist. And yes, uh, that's, that's exactly what the, I'm talking about. They would often describe it as anti-American um, and they would, they would contrast it with what they described as patriotic, which is actually how they describe themselves. Um, in the 1950s, they did not refer to themselves as conservative. Um, conservative is not an expression um, that people use generally to describe their politics until after about 1958 and Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. And so um, people, though, often would describe themselves as patriotic as a way of contrasting themselves with people who were different or liberal. And then people who were actually liberal or progressive, they would describe as uh, either subversive or pro-communist um, or something that would put them in the camp of red and dangerous. Um, and another reason why women in particular um, might do this is because it gave them a degree of political power. Um, because it, to be a, in, by red baiting um, in, in one's community uh, at the level of local politics or county politics meant that one could actually shape policy and uh, in, in, in a way that like the usual channels of power uh, would not give a woman. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you call their activism, you refer to what they're doing as housewife populism. And so I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that term and talk a little bit more about, along with red baiting, what are they doing to actually get you know, their agenda passed? Okay, actually, um, housewife populism, I, I don't use it to describe their activism so much as an ideology in formation. And what I, the way I describe that uh, ideology, um, historians often use that word, at least I say in class, is a belief system that's so close to you that you can't see it. So um, and it, in this case, an ideology that took formation um, in the Depression, uh, in the Depression era, um, when maternalism of the 1920s uh, started to lose power. Maternalism being um, that political ideology that gave middle-class women, uh, progressives, a great deal of power to kind of clean up society and 
this was the this was the ideology of reformers um, and suffragists and women who were um, in settlement houses. Um, but during the Depression, maternalism, I argue, lost power um, because there was elitism um, that drove maternalism. It involved middle class women. Um, who necessarily had to assume a kind of perspective of um, class privilege, that they had to reach out to a class of people um, who were less fortunate than them. But in the 1930s, um, in the Great Depression, um, there was a a great sense of anti-elitism developing among many different classes of Americans most of it was directed at economic elites, at bankers, but also at the government. Um, you know, an anti-elitism, a populism that expressed resentment um, at financial elites. Um, there's also a great deal of anti-Semitism um, reflected in that populism. And so um, what emerges is even among middle-class Americans – and women, that many housewives, many many women begin to see their role in politics as one of protecting their families and protecting their communities from outside interventionist elites in government or even um, any kind of power that might threaten the family or the community from outside. And so uh, what happens by the 1950s is uh, in the conservative movement, women, even those who are actually quite wealthy, start to position themselves as if they are part of a beleaguered majority that need to protect families and communities against a menacing government elite that wants to use its powers to threaten family life and threaten children. And so women who are actually have a, a great deal of power can, can act as if they themselves don't have much power. Um, and, and women, I, I, I argue and I, I believe I demonstrate, really did believe, even women who were quite wealthy, that they were, they were being threatened by the government. And they were being they were being threatened by um, powerful figures in the government, and that their families were too. So that's housewife populism, and I would argue that it's alive and well today, um, and that you see it in the um, most upper echelons of American politics, especially when you hear people like Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. Who are these women in terms of, as you mentioned, a lot of them are relatively wealthy. You're, of course, focused on the women who are living in Southern California. Are there other features that tie them together in terms of their sort of demographic and and how, not how they get interested, but who they are, just who they are? Um, Well, many of them are, I would say most of them are educated they either are fully educated at the college level or they have some college education. They tend to be married to professionals or businessmen. Um, in any case, uh, they have generally uh, a family income that's pretty stable. And um, most of them do not have a career in terms of, um, you know, they don't earn the family's income, but they tend to believe that because their husbands are out earning the the family income, it is their responsibility to do the political work of the family. So much like they feel it's their responsibility to take care of the children and plan the family vacation and do other things that a mother and the family do, they, they think it's their job to do this political work for the rest of the family. Um, and they're connected to each other through um, various organizations in Southern California, but also newsletters that they produce on mimeograph machines in, in their own homes, in their own garages. And these uh, 
these newsletters circulate within and well beyond California. Um, and so there's a great deal of evidence that uh, they're reading newsletters that are coming from Texas and Chicago and Washington, D.C., and that activists in those places are reading their newsletters as well. Um, and so this is a network of conservatives, um, many of them women, that extends nationwide. And so this is why uh, it must be examined as a movement early in the 1950s, well before uh, activists themselves refer to them as conservatives. They're acting like conservatives. They are um, doing the work and thinking like conservatives before Barry Goldwater actually introduces that word conservatism. And women themselves are, are doing most of this work. So how big is this movement? It seems like we often, you know, uh, Lisa McGurr's book and other books have talked about Southern California as being a place where uh, conservatism is rooted but how widespread is it? How many people are involved? You know, it's really difficult um, to put numbers on it, uh, nationally speaking. Um, I, I, I try to be so, cons- uh, quote, conservative in my estimates because I don't want to inflate any numbers. Um, in my book, I believe I say, I, I try and say 8,000 or something like that, but... I suspect it's so much more. You know, I was looking at Los Angeles um, County and uh, Lisa McGurr is looking at Orange County. Um, Finally, Colleen Duty did an excellent study of Detroit during the Cold War. And um, other people are looking at other regions and showing that, you know, the work that we're doing in L.A. um, can, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it can be done in other parts of the country as well. But I really do hesitate to give m- numbers. But it, it was huge. Sure. So let me ask that question a different way. Do you see L.A. and other parts of Southern California as a place where there's a particularly strong movement that's sort of a leader in something that is nationwide, but this is where there's a large focus? Or do you see this as more of an example of something that's happening in a whole bunch of different places? Okay, I, I think that uh, Los Angeles was particularly generative of uh, the conservative movement because of how it was growing as a metropolitan center. Um, but I do think that uh, there were other places um, that were, I would argue, are, were just as representative. Um, I think that you could look at Dallas and Houston. Um, probably in the, I would say the 1960s. And, um, if somebody were to tell me through their study that, um, those places were just as important, I would probably not be surprised. Um, I think that, uh, we're going to learn, it wouldn't surprise me if there are places in the Northeast and Midwest, maybe around Chicago, um, because of the size of these metropolitan regions, um, where we're going to learn, um, about some interesting uh, developments in the history of conservatism, too. So um, I don't think it's just Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. but um, uh, I do think Los Angeles is particularly important, especially because uh, the seat of the Republican Party um, moves from the East Coast to the West Coast in in this time period. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so I was wondering if maybe we might talk a little bit more about one or two of the other issues that these sure. women are particularly active in. And I I was particularly interested in some of their issues surrounding school, because as you talked yeah. about, uh, you know, they're particularly focused on talking about their role as mothers and their political mm-hmm. activism, activism through that. So I was wondering if you might tell us about one of those that you thought was particularly interesting or particularly illustrative of their activism. Sure. Um, I think... One of the most poignant moments, uh, probably one of the most important moments um, in the history of Los Angeles activism um, is when they expelled the the school superintendent, um, Willard Gosselin. And um, this is important because what it shows is, uh, first of all, the extent to which 
um, the parents had not only become so politicized, but how powerful they'd become in what was a very progressive school district. So um, Los Angeles County, uh, up to that point, and, you know, it still is today, it's it's full of progressive politics, and and also um, it had been full of conservative uh, action as well. Um, but Willard Gosselin, who was a progressive, he was trying to reform the political system in Pasadena, which was like a city on the outskirts of the city, a very affluent city. Um, but they'd had this problem of segregation, um, where students were being bused from one part of the school district out to another in, in order to accommodate parents who wanted to segregate their children. And uh, so he was trying to stop that from happening. Um, and he encountered conservatives who wanted him not to do this. Um, and these parents believed what he was doing was a form of socialism. And I don't think that they were just coding. This is one thing that I learned. They weren't just coding their language. They weren't just attacking him for desegregation and using the word communism as a way of cloaking their racism. They really did believe that his action, his, his you might say at this point, his civil rights reforms and that of the people around him, they really did believe that it was socialistic, the kind of the, and, and the kind of mixing that he wanted to do. In their mind, it was one and the same. And so they managed to get a great deal of support. They expelled him from the school system, and his example became that of many other school districts around the country. So the Willard Gosselin story circulates in Houston. It circulates um, to the to the Scarsdale um, school district, and so people are wondering, is, is this how it's going to be? It becomes a national story. Um, and not only that, it becomes an example um, for others around the country. And then the L.A. school district, which is, of course, right next door, and it's a much bigger school district, um, they managed to elect to their school board, it's a small school board, um, two red baiters, you know, people who use the red scare as a way of... Um, wielding power to women who stay on the school board for quite some time. Um, and they manage to essentially uh, remove all teaching materials by um, UNESCO, the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, um, on the grounds that it's communistic, it's socialistic, um, because they because UNESCO promotes, quote, internationalism. And in the minds of many anti-communists, internationalism equals communism. Um, and so they managed to scare the people of Los Angeles enough where the school board decides it's too dangerous. And, and that's how red baiting worked in the 1950s. It's not that you had to get convince all the voters. You just had to convince enough people that an issue was dangerous or too hot and it and and people who were about to come up for election like people on the on the school board or um you know local school local officials in the city or county that they would be afraid for their next election and so they would just do something like pull the curriculum and what's important about this is that Progressive education was something that, that used to be part of public school curricula. And really, it's not anymore. And there's pretty good evidence to suggest that the work of red baiters had something to do with this. That progressive education became something that was too dangerous. So these women are enormously influential, it seems like. And I'm curious about two questions, but I'll start with the question of what does everybody else think about this? Uh, it mm -hmm. sounds like there's certainly 
as you say, scaring enough people and getting enough people interested to have a big effect on policy. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason I'm curious is I write much more frequently about the 1960s than the 1950s. And with someone like Goldwater, there's, of course, a strong uh, historiography talking about how uh, much Democrats in particular or liberals underestimated the conservative movement. Now, of course, the Mm -hmm. 1950s, there's a much stronger strain of anti-communism going on. But I'm curious what everybody else thinks about these women. Are they seen as a political threat? Are they people that are just getting a lot of support or are they something else? Um, Well, some people think that they're crazy. Um, And then... Some people are don't want to go near them. Some people are just not listening to them. Um, already, the the words like paranoia and um, you know, they're already already those words. Um, um, what what are the other crackpot? Um, those are already in circulation, and um, they're already being used uh, to describe conservative women. Um, and in fact, by the, as I, as I mentioned in the Siberia USA, um, piece, you know, women become the icons of, um, the, what, what becomes known as the conservative style. So, um, a lot of people just think they're off the rocker, especially intellectuals. Um, in fact, they're even dismissed by, uh, what some people describe as the mainstream of American conservatism, the National Review, William Buckley's journal, uh, they attempt to distance themselves from conservative women. Um, they write about uh, Siberia, USA, uh, in, as a way of mocking the women who are campaigning against the bill. Um, so you have largely intellectuals um, and others, you know, a lot of mostly people on the left who, who think they're crazy and want to distance themselves. Um, then you have other people, people who could be vulnerable, who are just trying to be nice and trying not to make waves. Um, and then you have other people who who think that uh, conservative women could be their allies and help them do things. Um, people, I'm thinking like uh, Cardinal McIntyre, who was uh, the first Catholic um, cardinal of the American West, very influential in the city of Los Angeles. And he counted conservative women among his most loyal supporters. Um, and, and there were others who counted on him, on, on them. Uh, I'm thinking about, um, oh, oh, there's a very influential pastor, um, whose name is, uh, the, uh, the Reverend Fifield, um, who, he established a very influential, um, speaking series and, uh, he was one. He was a very formative libertarian of the of the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. Who was on on the radio and uh, and held a speaking series at his church. So, um, yeah, people like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it seems like there's a pretty big range then of how people yes. are responding to them, really. Yeah, and of course, Robert Welch of the John Birch Society mm-hmm. loved them and counted on them. They were among his most loyal supporters. Right. So the other question that I was curious about uh, in regards to these campaigns is you mentioned that one of the legacies of the school activism was in really changing and getting rid of or uh, decreasing at least progressive education. I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about what other sorts of legacies or what other more long-term effects you might see these women as having. Well, um, I think that women played an important role in establishing the the grassroots traditions of the conservative movement. 
um, conservative conservatism becomes a mass movement in the 1950s. And really, it's women who initiate that process. They started organizations out of their living rooms and kitchens, and uh, they opened the first right-wing bookstores. I found in the course of my research and mapped 27 conservative bookstores around uh, the greater Los Angeles, and most of them were started and run by women volunteers who raised capital from companies around Los Angeles, and they persisted into the 1970s. Um, And then they were more or less replaced by John Birch Society reading rooms. Um, Women were the volunteers for the um, organizations like the Christian Anti-Communism Crusade that was run by um, a man by the name of Schwartz. I mean, he was the Christian Anti-Communism Crusade, Fred Schwartz, but uh, women volunteered for him in the different cities where he would bring this crusade that um, that was held in stadiums. They were like rallies. Um, and then women like uh, June, Janet Green was, you know, she was an anti-communist folk singer. Um, so she would become like, you know, the voice, the singing voice. Um, and women were the volunteers for people like Barry Goldwater. Um, women wrote and published and circulated the newsletters. So um, women were were very important to that, those early years of conservatism becoming something more than uh, an intellectual movement, more than the National Review. Um, Barry Goldwater, of course, uh, helped to make conservatism a name and a word and an idea um but when you really try and understand the early um dynamics of the mass movement you can't really understand it without looking at the work that the women were doing um women were also doing that early uh grassroots canvassing work of um conservatism in the republican party um so bringing conservatism into the republican party um, and, uh, I think probably the last thing I would emphasize and most importantly is bringing, uh, the issues of the family into the Republican party and into conservatism. So, uh, when we think about how, uh, women saw communism happening in the schools and imagined liberalism and as something communistic, as something that was sinister to the family. Well, that's what they brought into the conservative movement. This idea that conservatism was more pro family. Mm-hmm. Of course, as a feminist, I don't think that's the case at all. But somehow conservatives have come to believe, and they believed this long before they were anti-feminist in the 1970s, they believed that the Republican Party and their ideology was more pro-family and more oriented to the conservative family than that of liberals. And I think that the work of women had a great deal to do with that. Um, an example I would give is for uh, the, the Conservative Sex was a book published by uh, a famous conservative intellectual. And, oh, my God, his name is totally escaping me right now. Um, but he talks about women as the conservative sex. Um, and, and women believed that, that they were natu- there was something naturally more conservative about them, that they were more attuned um, to the needs of children and the family, um, and that that's what they brought into the world of politics, and that because of this, they were more vigilant to the dangers that government and uh, centralized power posed to the family and the community. And therefore, they had a role to play in politics, And they weren't the only ones that believed them. Conservative men believed it too. 
at least that's what they said in the 1950s and 1960s. And so I think this is why conservatism came to see itself, or it's one of the reasons conservatism came to see itself uh, as the advocates of the family. Mm -hmm. That's great. One of the things I love about your book is the extent to which a lot of these themes, a lot of these legacies you're talking about are things that it seems like we all sort of know that conservatives are really focused on the family or that they talk about the family a lot or we have lots of these ideas, but you're tracing them back to a much earlier time period than historians usually place them. Yeah, you tend to think about it as something that comes out of the 50s, right? When um, people were so troubled by the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think it's important to see the extent to which that conservatives themselves were generative of, of their own political tradition. Right. Um, and that we take it seriously as, as a movement and um, with, its, with ideas that, that came from people and that uh, were reconfigured over time within itself. Yeah. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, uh, just uh, before we uh, finish talking about the book, is ask you a question or two about the interview process. Because another thing that's really great about your book, and we haven't talked a lot about, but is that you've interviewed a bunch of individual women and really their individual stories and personalities come alive in the book. Yeah. And so I was curious if you might... Talk a little bit about that process of how you found these women. Are they were they really excited to talk to you? Are they, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about how they look back on the Alaska mental health bill, but just kind of what that experience and process was like. Um. Well, to me, the doing the oral histories uh, was one of the. It was so important to the whole. Uh, research process, and I loved talking to them. In fact, three of the archival collections uh, in which I did research came out of that process, women who just had mountains of materials still left in their house. And they eventually, not only did they give me access, but they then left it Um, in two cases to the Huntington Library and in one case to UCLA. Um, I mean, these were incredibly rich materials, and most of them were so eager to talk to me um, because they had stories to tell uh, that people generally had never been interested in before. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that. Um, And they felt like they had done... They had participated in this history. They had really participated. They had worked really hard, and nobody had cared to talk about it before. Um, Many of them were a little anxious because they felt as if uh, the media generally wanted to write or they wanted polemic um, from people like them. But... Um, I already had, there were already, by the time I was doing interviews, I forget if Lisa McGurr's book was out, but uh, Rick, Rick Perlstein's book was out. There were a couple of books already out that I would bring to my interviews and say, I, I don't want to write polemic. Look, this is what historians are doing. This is how we write about conservatives today. These are the questions that we ask. This is what we want to know. And that was enough for them. Um... But what kind of disturbed me was that uh, they weren't just friendly. Uh, they were way more interesting and uh, solicitous and, uh, frankly, disarming than I had anticipated. And so I found myself warming up to them. I became friends with a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just didn't know what to do with this because, as you know from the book, their politics are so, uh, they're so tough. You know, they're so, you read what they did in the 50s, and it just, it just feels terrible. Um, but, and I just, it made writing very, very difficult um, because it kind of had to reckon with the humanity that I confronted um, in the process of doing the interviews. And um, 
but then eventually I kind of gave into that and I said, well, then there must be something to that. This is kind of pulling me into a particular direction. Um, and so I decided that I had to kind of reckon with it in the writing. I had to, I just had, they, they had to be, they had to be real people on the paper. And so, um, I, I always knew I wanted them to have, uh, interiority. You know, I wanted them, I really wanted to explore their formation of their consciousness. Um, but I also, um, I had to keep them in the process. Like long before I, I published the book, I had published some articles. And so I actually did a presentation in California where I invited them. I gave a talk. I circulated the papers and I said, this is what I've presented about you. Um, so this is you out there now. What do you think? And so I kind of try to keep them involved in how they were appearing and I wanted to get a sense of what they felt about it. And they, they generally, I mean, they liked it. They, they felt in some senses they're like, well, I'm not comfortable with this or, but that's your, you know, that's up to you. And generally it's great. And they were very supportive and they generally loved the project. Even they, even though they sometimes disagreed with how I, portrayed X, Y, or Z. And, um, I just learned, you know, so much about more, more than this history by, by getting to know a lot of them. The other thing about them is if you think about how wealthy a lot of them are, or at least established a middle class, you can imagine that a lot of them have evolved from the fifties. A lot of them are not quite the way they were. Um, children especially kind of help you develop. So I, d- I dealt with that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was curious about that. I was wondering, because one of the things you are really interested in is how they're thinking of their own activism in the 1950s. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was uh, something that it seemed like their views had changed a lot now that they're looking back on it and or, of course, everybody's views looking back on their life changes. So was that a challenge for you to kind of try and trace out what they thought in the 1950s versus what they thought when you're actually interviewing them retrospectively? Well, yeah, that's what I'm reckoning with, memory. And so I dealt with the memory as a text. That's all I have to deal with. And so I was thinking about, I was interested in what they were thinking about themselves. Um, And what I found interesting is that none of them changed, like became radicals. None of them like did this about face in terms of their politics. But... um, Many of them just seem to, they just almost seem like they had a different skin. Uh, so several of them uh, were no longer what I would describe as traditional housewives. Some of them had full-on careers or, or were divorced or, um, you know, had, you know, they went and had some other kind of life after their kids were grown. Um, one of them, one of my favorites you know, I talked to her while she was talking to her daughter. Um, her daughter was in the room, and her daughter converted to Islam and was, wore full hijab. And so they were of two two very different religious faiths, and um, but they were as close as could be. And even though they believed very different things, like her daughter was the closest person to, to her, and. You know, they were they were conserv they were both conservative, right? In these two different religions, and it seemed to work, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting to see people how they work these things out. Another one, um, the one who opened the first right wing bookstore, her daughter was a radical hippie who lived in Berkeley, and um, they were also very close. In fact, she told her daughter when I was doing research up there that she's like, Jonna, you need to put Michelle up. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was great. And so I got to know her daughters very well. You know, they're all very close, even though their politics 
with their mother was very different, you know. So you see these generational Mm -hmm. uh, relationships kind of, you know, change them to a degree, though not completely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's a great set of stories. Um, So we've taken up a lot of your time, so I thought we would end by asking you our traditional last question, which is what are you working on now? So I've gone from studying uh, conservatives in Los Angeles to studying uh, radicals in Camden, New Jersey. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So I'm looking at... um, I'm looking at Catholic radicals of the late 1960s who were protesting the Vietnam War by raiding draft board offices. Um, in particular, I'm looking at uh, a group that raided um, the Camden, the, the draft board office in Camden, in um, Camden, New Jersey, in 1971. Um, and I'm interested in this episode for a lot of reasons. Um, they were caught uh, because the FBI had infiltrated uh, their action. Um, they they basically had a, a, a guy who spied on them for free. And then, so the FBI caught them red-handed. And then they went up for trial in 1973 and were fully acquitted by the jury, by jury nullification. Basically, the jury was like, this is absurd and... And it was a it was a, a case where the defendants presented their own case, and I mean it's a it's a just an incredible story. Um, I'm interested in examining how Catholicism is shaping American politics uh, at this time. Uh, I'm interested in thinking about um, resistance to the Vietnam War and where it intersects with uh, the urban crisis at this moment because. At the same time um, that the raid was happening, Camden was in the midst of a riot. So the city was burning. I mean, it was it's just crazy. So, you know, on the one hand, these activists are there because they're opposed to, to the war in Vietnam, but they're also opposed to the selective service, right? And so how the, the government is poaching um, working-class men. But then, you know, the, for all for a lot of the same issues... Uh, the Puerto Rican and African community are are riding in the city. Um, so I, these are the. It's as you know. It's just a. It's an incredible project for somebody who's interested in urban history and race relations and gender history. And yeah, I'm really loving it. But it's going at a glacial pace because I'm also graduate program director at the moment. <laughs> Right. Very busy, I'm sure. It sounds like a really great project. Sounds like a very interesting uh, moment uh, in in that period. Oh, I'm really enjoying it. Great. Well, Thanks. thank you so much for uh, speaking to us today. And maybe we'll have you back on when uh, your next book is done. Okay. 